Um, and I just want to say, usually if I'm in here, I have to find a replacement for in there. But uh, I want to brag on all my, uh, my, my teenagers, my middle schoolers in there. For the last few weeks, they have been doing everything. I don't do anything except sit at the back of the room and make grumpy faces at them. Uh, but I've been uh, trying to get them to uh, expand, and, and so they've been teaching the lesson. They've been doing the object lesson. They've been doing the games. They've been doing everything. Praise and worship, they're leading it all, and it's really cool. So they've been doing that for the last three weeks. This is their last one, and uh, I think they're going to be <laughs> glad when that's over because I've been making them do things that they don't necessarily want to do. But let's get outside of our comfort zone. Okay, so um, I was given the task of teaching week three in this series, so I thought, well, I better listen to this uh, the first two weeks. I'm just kidding. I listen every week on our app, and actually, before I get started, I want to do a quick poll. All right, uh, is there anybody else in here that listens to the sermons on the app during the week? Anybody? Okay, we were, we were talking about that the other day in, in the office. We were wondering how many people actually did that, because uh, it doesn't tell you, but all right, so uh, I noticed that uh, we've, we've talked about this hope for the, this idea of hope for the holidays, and I've, I've listened to the sermons, and, and Pastor talked about how Jesus has showed up, and he talked about how uh, Jesus has spoken into our lives. Um, and so for this next idea, uh, I'm going to be talking to you about the idea of standing, Jesus standing for us. Um, and I'm using a, a Bible story that doesn't usually get associated with Christmas, but it does go along with this, this idea of our hope for the holidays. So uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to uh, Acts chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 8. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Calicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? Now I'm going to skip over Stephen's actual defense. It's, it's a pretty long speech. But through this, he traces the history of God's relationship with Israel and how God had given them a revelation. God had given them law. God had given them promises. And in each case, the Jews had rejected that. And so he brings it up to the forward time or to the current time. And he points out how even when Jesus himself came, that very same body had judged him and had sentenced him to death. And so uh, he demonstrated how this whole Jewish religious system and how the temple uh, itself was almost like an idol. In fact, he uses the terminology that says it was made by human hands, just like they did when they were talking about idols. And so um, he even accuses the Sanhedrin of, of betraying and murdering the, the, the Jesus, the very Son of God. And so this creates a very violent reaction. So if we skip on down... We, we skip over to uh, 7, verse 54. We'll finish the story here. It says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged 
and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together today and to worship you. Lord, we thank you for this story that has been recorded for us. Lord, we believe that there's something in this that you want us to know and to hear today. So, Lord God, I pray that you would just be with us today. Pray that you would open our ears, open our hearts and minds to the message that you have to say today. Lord God, I pray that you would anoint my mouth to only say the things that would point people to you. And, Lord God, I pray that when we leave this house today, we will be encouraged with the hope that we have for this holiday season. And we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So, um, as we're looking at this passage... The thing that stood out to me was this idea of standing, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And uh, it's interesting because in this moment of crisis, Stephen is given a unique glimpse into the activity of heaven. It's not often that we can see what's actually going on in the spiritual realm. So the fact that he was given this vision was a, a wonderful gift given to him. But what makes this even more unique is this idea that Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. In all the other references that are in Scripture of Jesus being in heaven with God the Father, it references either Him being at His right hand or sitting at His right hand. And so this is the only instance where this word stand, uh, the Greek word is histemi, and it's the only time where it's used to say that God or that Jesus is standing at the side of God. Um, so, you know, why... Why in this one instance is Jesus standing instead of sitting as in, other, in, in all the other references? Well, the, the scholars disagree on this. They, there are several reasons why you might stand up. For instance, um, you might stand as a sign of authority. You might think of, for instance, a royal court. You know, if the king is there, everyone else should bow to the king. Well, Jesus is there with God. And he does not have to bow in the presence of God because he's co-equal with him. And so for them, they were saying this is a theological statement as to Jesus' position in heaven. Okay? And so this is a symbol of his authority that he's standing in God's presence. Other people say that he was standing um, because he was standing in trial or judgment. You think about a courtroom. You go into a courtroom. When the, when the judge walks in, they say, all rise, right? So we all stand to represent or to, to show our, our deference for the legal system and, and for the important things that are going on at that time. Um, and then also at the end of the, the trial, they always have the accused to stand when they read the verdict, right? So standing is saying, okay, we are ready to be judged. We are ready uh, for this trial to be ended. And so some would say that when Jesus was standing, he was standing in judgment, either of the people who were murdering Stephen or of Stephen himself. So they say he stood because he was about to issue judgment. Other, um, other scholars say that Jesus was standing to show respect or honor for Stephen and for his sacrifice. 
And we see this, for instance, when we, when we stand for the national anthem. You know, and if you, if you follow sports at all, you know that this has been a big issue lately is that people are not standing when the national anthem is, is, is uh, sung, and so they'll kneel or they'll sit. And it's a way for them to show dishonor for the ideas that America stands for and those kinds of things. Um, or if someone does just something so amazing and, and you want to recognize how awesome they've been, you stand and you give them a standing ovation, Correct. So they say that when Jesus stood, that's what he was doing. He was standing up and giving an ovation to Stephen, saying, thank you for your faithfulness. And finally, they say that Jesus was standing to greet and welcome Stephen into heaven. Um, you know, when someone comes to your house, uh, especially if, you, if, uh, if it's a more formal setting, you don't just, you know, when you hear the knock on the door, you don't just don't go, hey, come on in, it's unlocked, you know. If it's, if it's, you know, a formal setting, you've invited someone over to your house for a party or whatever, what do you do? You go to the door and you greet them and you welcome them, welcome them into your home. And so some say that when Jesus was standing, that he was actually greeting Stephen and welcoming, welcoming him into his reward. Um. But Scripture doesn't tell us which of these things it is. We don't know why specifically it is that Jesus stood, but we do know that there had to have been something special about this situation, something about Stephen, something about the way he lived his life, something about the way he provided a, a testimony and a witness to those around that caused Jesus to get up from his place and position of authority and, and to recognize Stephen in this moment. So... Um, what are some things that we can learn about the life of Stephen? Well, first of all, in Acts chapter 6, it shows us that he was a servant. Stephen was one of the seven men that were chosen to be the first deacons. Um, as, the, as the early church grew, they outgrew the 12 disciples. There was too much work to be done, and the 12 disciples couldn't accomplish it all. And as it grew, there were the, the Jewish Christians, and then there were the Hellenistic Christians, that is, people who spoke Greek rather than Aramaic. And so it was a, it was a multicultural church, but it, that created some logistical problems. And they were saying, well, the, the, the poor and the, the widows of, of the Hellenistic Jews are not being taken care of like they're supposed to. So they appointed these seven deacons, and Stephen was one of those. And so he was engaged in, um, you know, this wasn't like a leadership position. It was actually a servant position. They were going around literally serving food and, and, and ministering at the table to people who were disadvantaged, who needed the assistance. And so we see that he was a servant. Um, he, uh, it wasn't too low for him. You know, he didn't view this as something that, oh, well, I'm too high, I'm too mighty, I'm, I'm too good to serve in this capacity. No, he said, you know, this is something that needs to be done. Nothing is beneath me. All he cared about was taking care of the body of Christ. And so that's why we see in Stephen servanthood. And, and this echoes what we saw in Jesus, right? There was no one that was too low. There was no one that was beneath Jesus, even the little kids. When people were turning the little kids away from Jesus, he said, no, look, bring them here, bring them here, because I'm here as much for them as I am for you. you know? And so we see in Stephen's life that he was a servant. And so if we want to receive that, that honor that, that, that Jesus showed for him when he stood then we too need to take on this idea of servanthood. We need to find a place where we can serve. 
Um, you know, there wasn't space in the early church for consumer Christians. It wasn't about, oh, well, I liked the worship style over here or, or that, that apostle. I like the way he preaches better. Or, you know, I like the decor in this home, you know, house church over here. You know, that's not what they were doing. I mean, they were literally just sharing the gospel and sharing everything together and working together. And so none of that mattered. It was just how can I serve the body of Christ? And so that's the first thing that we can learn from Stephen. The second thing that we learned from his life is that he was a ready and able evangelist. That means beyond his service, waiting tables, literally waiting tables in the, in the home churches, he was also in the synagogues preaching and teaching and defending the gospel. And he did so with wisdom and with the infilling of the Spirit so much that people literally had no answer for him. That's what it said in verse 10. It said, uh, they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. And, um, you know, this is a direct evidence that he was filled with the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is what enables us and empowers us to be a witness. And so when, when he was able to go in there and to defend the faith, um, he was doing it at the, at the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might think, well, you know, why is that important for me to do today? Well, you need to be able to defend your faith. Why? Because our society is not one that, that accepts Christianity at face value anymore. When we look at, you know, when we go out into the world, people look at us and they say, okay, the, the, uh, the, the onus is on you. You have to prove to me that God exists. You have to prove to me that Jesus was who he said he was. They don't just accept that and then say, you know what, you're right, I should get right with God. No, they say, you need to prove to me that it's even reasonable that God exists before I can begin to come to a place where I might know him. And so that's why it's important that we as Christians study we read our Bibles, we, we pray, we, we get into the Word, we, we get into these um, uh, theological works that, that show us the, uh, the rational background. And, uh, and so, you know, that was the other thing that he did. He was able to stand and defend. Now, I, know, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people who have said, you know, I don't really want to get into a theological discussion because I might not have all the answers. Right. And they think, well, if I don't have all the answers, then I'll just get out there and I'll make myself look foolish. And, you know, then I'll do more harm than good. And yet Stephen was not afraid of that. Why? Because he had the Holy Spirit, you know, and we were promised that the Holy Spirit would give us guidance. The Holy Spirit would let us know the right things to say. The Holy Spirit would help us to, when we speak, we're not speaking in our own power, we're speaking in His power. And we might not even understand why a particular argument is more convincing for someone, but the Holy Spirit knows what that person needs to hear. The Holy Spirit has been at work in that person's life, drawing them and pulling them closer to God. And yet, it can't be accomplished if there hadn't been someone like Stephen who was there to, to preach and defend the gospel. And so we're in a society, a post-Christian society, and that is why it is so important that we prepare ourselves. We read our Bibles daily. We pray. We study Scripture. We look beyond just the simple meaning of, of it and actually start digging into what does this word mean and why, why did God say it like this or, or what does Paul mean when he wrote this? And, and when we get into the, to the nitty-gritty, when we get into the details, you know, then that gives us ammunition, right? It gives us something that we can use to point people back to God. 
The third thing that we can learn from, from Stephen is that he was a, a walking contradiction. And, and, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like that myself sometimes. And as Christians, we should be. He walked in this precarious balance between grace and truth, truth and grace. Because we're called to proclaim truth. We're called to call a spade a spade. We're called to point out sin and say this is wrong and this is not how it's supposed to be. God did not design this world to be like this. God did not design marriage to look like that. God did not design um, relationships to be like that. And, and so we're called to proclaim truth in all of those settings. And yet at the same time, we have to exercise grace, right? We know that we ourselves need grace. And see, you know, when you look at Stephen... And, and I didn't read his, his whole defense that he gave, but on the one hand, he was telling them, you know, that, that they, were, they were murderers, that they, that they had literally turned and murdered Jesus. And this wasn't saying, oh, your forefathers did it, although he didn't point out that they did it as well. But he wasn't saying, oh, your ancestors murdered the prophets. He's like, no, you yourselves just a, a few months or, or even a few years ago murdered Jesus who was sent for your sins. And so he was in almost in the same breath, though he's uh, defending them and calling out, or not defending them, but accusing them and calling them out for their shortcomings. But then as they turn to murder him, he's calling out to God saying, God, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. And so he was in this precarious balance of grace and truth. And this is something that our world can't understand. It confuses them. They don't get it. I mean, I've often talked with people about, you know, like abortion, and they'll say, well, you know, pro-life people, they want the baby to be born, but then they don't care anything about the baby after they're born. And I'm like, have you met Christians? Right? I mean, every Christian I've talked to has been more than happy to, let's, let's help, let's support, uh, uh, let's support orphanages, let's support uh, families that need assistance, let's, let's help, let's adopt, let's do all these kinds of things. And I'm like, how can you make this argument? It doesn't even make sense, but the world doesn't get it. They, they don't understand how we can say that this is not right, and yet also extend grace to those who engage in that. They don't understand when we say that we hate the sin but love the sinner. They don't get that. They say, well, that doesn't work. You know, if you hate the activity, then you hate the person doing that activity. No, we don't. We love the person, but they don't understand it. But it's, it's a hard thing to walk. And, you know, there are times in our lives when we're called to love people and to be gracious to people that don't deserve it. There are times that we're called to love people and to be nice to people and show God's love to them when, when they're living in complete opposition to everything that God teaches in Scripture. And, you know, sometimes it's not our place to call them and say, you know, what you're doing is wrong. You know, all too often they already know that what they're doing is wrong. They just haven't come to that place where they can admit that they're wrong. They haven't come to that place where they can admit that they need God in their lives. And so... Rather than being condemning, sometimes it's just our position to just be there and to love them and to be kind to them. Because we don't know what that's going to do. And we'll talk more about that later in here. But, um, you know, Jesus promised us. He promised us that the world was going to hate us. And, and that's why. Because they can't understand how we can live in this balance of, of truth and grace. And what they don't realize is that, is that we as Christians live in a balance of truth and grace. Because we understand that we are sinners ourselves. I'm a sinner myself. 
And yet, I also have to give myself the same grace that I know that God has given me. I know how badly I've messed up. I know that I still mess up every day. And yet, I also know that I'm covered by the grace of God. I know that I'm, I'm, I am a sinner, but I'm also a saint. We're both. All right, and the, But the world can't seem to get that. So that's why it's important that when we're walking in this balance that we do so with a mind that, that it just doesn't click. To someone on the outside, it just doesn't click yet. And so we have to be careful in the, in the way that we uh, live our lives and in the way that we speak to people. Finally, we see that, that Stephen was surrendered to God's will even if it was going to lead to his death. All right? Now... So, you know, here I am, I'm talking about Stephen, I'm talking about how we should emulate him, and you think, well, Stephen did everything right, and still he ended up dead. So what happened? Why didn't God rescue him? Why didn't God save him? If, if Jesus was already standing up, why didn't he zap some people and, and let Stephen walk on and continue on? But what we have to understand is that many times the witness that we give when we're in a time and a position of pain is far more powerful than the, the witness that we give when we're in a position of, 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 of blessing and excess. Think about it. You know, if... If I hear someone say, you know, God's taking care of me, he provides everything I need, and they come from nothing, their family has always had nothing, and yet you can see the hand of God on their life miraculously providing for them when they had no other resources, that's one thing. But if you have some rich guy who was born with a trust fund, and, and you know, and he's like, well, God's always provided for me, and I'm like, yeah, so did your parents, right? You know? But because... You're, if you're in that position of want and need, all right, then you have a greater testimony and, and, and it has a greater impact, all right? If, if someone is ill and, or, and you have overcome great illness, you can speak to them and say, listen, my God's a healer and I know this. Why? Because I've lived it. If you know someone who needs financial resources, you can say, listen, God's taking care of me because I was faithful and, and I know this because I've lived it, all right? And so... That is why, you know, sometimes we're allowed to go through things and we don't understand why. But sometimes we do that because God has a specific plan and a purpose. And specifically in Stephen's situation, let me point out two things that happened because of Stephen's death. Things that would not have probably happened if he were to have been rescued and allowed to live. First of all, after his death, it created a, a firestorm of persecution. And it pushed the Christians out of the comfort zone of Jerusalem. It pushed them out and away. And it began, it, you know, Jesus had given them commission to go to Jerusalem and Judea and, and, and through, out to the ends of the earth. And, uh, but they had still stayed concentrated in Jerusalem. But after Stephen's death, it began this period of persecution that, that, that Saul slash Paul began to talk about and how he went from house to house, dragging them out, throwing them in prison, uh, abusing them and all these sorts of things. And it pushed all of the Christians. They began to go out of Jerusalem and spread the message and spread the gospel with them. And that wouldn't have happened if Stephen had been allowed to live. The other thing that we see is that there was a young man present at that execution. His name was Saul. And we see that, you know, Saul had a great, great impact on, on the history of the early church. I mean, he wrote almost half of the New Testament. Uh, but when, when he has his Damascus Road experience, when God opens up the heavens and speaks to him, we see that this is not the first time that he has been around someone who had a vision of the risen Lord. 
All right, so Stephen, in his moment of death, as he's being stoned, as he's dying, he cries out, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. And so then, when Jesus reveals himself to Paul, you have to know that in his mind he was thinking back to that time. You have to know that he was saying, well, maybe Stephen was telling the truth. Maybe Stephen really did see Jesus. Maybe Jesus really is the Son of God. Maybe Jesus, and so this was all part of that that convinced him. And, and thirdly, Saul would have been guilty of the death of, of Jesus if not for the fact that, or uh, of Stephen, if not for the fact that Stephen in his dying breath had called out, God, please don't hold this sin against them. Just like Jesus, he called out because he wanted mercy for those who hated him. He wanted mercy for those who were against him. So we see that Stephen was surrendered to to God's will even to his death and that even though his death was sad, even though his death was not something that we should desire, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want to walk out of this place and be killed for my faith. I, I cherish the fact that I live in a country where I'm able to stand up for what I believe and say who I am. People might not like me for it, but they can't attack me for it. You know, I'm protected under the Constitution. I, I, I'm so glad that I live in a situation like that. But if I didn't, I would still be willing. Because why? Because I'm committed to God's will. I'm committed to His purpose. And if, through my sacrifice, God can in some way forward or, or advance His kingdom, then I'm more than willing to do that. And, and we have to do that if we're going to be like Stephen. So what do we do when we look at Stephen's situation and we say, this doesn't really line up with some of the teaching that we hear today. For instance, you hear these prosperity teachers who say, you know, you, you could name it and claim it. You know, if you, if you will sow in this seed offering, you'll uh, reap a hundredfold return and all these kinds of things. But what if, if God's plan for our life isn't always for us to go from blessing to blessing to blessing to blessing? You know? What if sometimes in our life it appears that God has taken us from trial through trial through trial through trial? Well, let me tell you something. You know, God is God whether we're on the mountain or whether we're in the valley. God is God whether we are blessed or whether we are being tested. And so when we look at the path that we're going to go through in our life, we don't have to get discouraged just because it doesn't seem like we're skipping from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. Um, you know, God will use problems in your life to grow you as a person. God will use problems in your life to provide opportunities for you to, to feed into others. I was speaking to someone to, uh, just a, a few days ago who was saying that um, her life had not turned out the way she had planned it to turn out. She'd always been faithful. She'd been raised in the church. Um, she had, uh, you know, always planned to live out her life uh, in the way that God had planned it. But, but circumstances beyond her control had placed her in, in places where she never thought that she would go. And yet, in the current circumstances, she was placed in a position of influence in the lives of several families who were going through some very traumatic things. And she said, I, I don't know why I had to go through some of the things I had to go through, but I feel like because of the experiences I've had, I'm able to minister to these families more effectively than I ever would have done if I had just been constantly blessed. And so we have to see that, you know, when we are faithful and when we stand firm with, with God, that when the time comes, God will stand firm for us. All right? Jesus is there in heaven as our 
as our advocate. He's there to intercede for us. He's there to stand firm for us. He's there to to honor us. And someday, when we've been faithful, when we get to the end of our lives, we have hope that no matter how our lives turned out, whether it was as long as we desired or, or it was cut short, whether our lives were, were blessed or whether we, we had constant trials and, and tests in our lives. This is our hope. And I was so glad that this was the topic for this, for this series because I'm sure you've all heard the statistics. This, type of, this time of year is some of the worst for people who are suffering depression. Um, and, and, and I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it's because... Um, of the, the pressure and the stress of the holidays. It just gets to people. It gets them down. And they don't know, you know, how they're going to keep up with everything, keep up with the Joneses. The tree has to be just right. you got to have your yard decorations just right. And, and they feel all this pressure to, to, to perform up to the standards of the day. Or for some people, maybe it's just um, uh, expectations that were never met. Maybe when they get together with their family and they want, you know, the picturesque, everybody gathered around the table, everybody's loving each other, we got all the spread spread out on the table, we're just eating food and having a great time and enjoying each other's company, and yet when they actually go spend time with their family, it's the complete opposite, you know, everybody's eating macaroni out of a can and, and uh, screaming at each other and throwing things, and, you know, I don't know if it's that, I don't know if it's maybe... Uh, Maybe this time of year, you know, we begin thinking, um, we begin reviewing our year. I don't know how, if you're on Facebook, right? Facebook just the other day popped up, hey, here's your year in review. And you start looking back at the year and you think, man, this year was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Or things did not turn out the way I'd hoped and planned this year. And then we start looking forward to the future. And we, we think, you know, I don't see it getting any better. You know, we we. we think, oh, well, maybe I'll do this different. I'll manage my finances better. I'll finally lose that last 15 pounds. I'll, you know, we, we make these plans for the future and, and we just think we don't see any relief in sight. I'm not sure what it is that causes people to have this, this overwhelming sense of despair in this time of year. And I'm not saying that everybody in here has that, but I am saying that as Christians, when we think about this time of year, we have hope for the holidays that the rest of the world does not have. When we look at our year and it didn't turn out the way we wanted it to, we have hope for the future. When we look at our families and our families didn't turn out the way we hoped it would be, when people are at each other's throats and disagreeing and, and not loving each other like they should, we have hope that that will be changed. When we, look at, um, when we look at people that we wish would turn to God and they just continually reject Him, I know people in my own family who have turned their back on God and it just it hurts me every time I think about them. But we know that there's hope for the future. The, the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, he recognized the, the inherent evilness inside of man. And he, he recognized that that there's something inside of humanity that, that it's just wrong. And if we leave it unchecked, it creates a place where everybody is just selfish, only looking out for themselves. It's a constant state of war if, if we are just left completely to our own devices. And, and he said if, if we're left in that place, our lives can be described as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. 
But thankfully, as Christians, we don't have to accept that as that is how things are going to be. As Christians, we have a hope that we don't have to live a solitary life. We can live together in communion with God and with other believers. We don't have to live a poor life because although we may not have tons of means, we may not have all sorts of financial resources, we'll always have that that we need that God will provide for us. Our lives don't have to be nasty. We don't have to be known by the, the, the negative words and the harsh words and those sorts of things that go on in our life. Our life can be marked by love and kindness. Our life doesn't have to be brutish. We don't have to constantly be under attack. We can live our lives blessing those who, who curse us. We can live our lives loving those who hate us. And so it, we don't have to live like that. And finally, we don't have to live a short life because we know that no matter how long our physical existence here, here on earth is, that this is just a drop in the bucket compared to the eternity that we will get to spend with our Father someday. So as you go through this holiday season... As you get caught up in, in shopping and, and Christmas parties and family obligations and, and all the things that go along with this season, I want you guys to think about Stephen. And I want you to think about the fact that if we are faithful like him, that just like him, we have hope that we will be vindicate, vindicated. We have hope that Jesus will stand on our behalf. We have hope that Jesus will uh, stand and in, in honor our uh, our lives and our sacrifices. And, uh, and so that's what I want to, to do today. As we close, I'd like to offer the opportunity for anyone in this house who is not in that place where they have that hope. If, if you maybe are struggling and, and you feel like, you know what, I don't feel the hope. Maybe you're someone who has never been saved before. And, and you're out there and you're thinking, man, that sounds nice and I'd sure like to have it. Today is the day. You don't have to wait another day. You don't have to wait till Monday to start. You don't have to wait till 2017, January 1st to start. You can start right now. You can start today. And so we want to pray for that. Second, maybe you're a person who is a Christian. Maybe you've been living for the Lord, but for whatever reason, you've been struggling with having the hope. Well, I want you to know that although we cannot see it, we have not been blessed like Stephen has, you have an advocate at the right hand of the Father who's standing for you, who's going to be there waiting for you, and who will be there to, to welcome you into your reward. It's interesting, when you look at the name Stephen, it means crowned or wreathed. This was, this was what was given to those who were victorious at the end of the race. The, the, the wreath was placed on their head. Paul references that in, in the other one where he says that, that, that runners, they run for a wreath that doesn't last. But when we go to heaven, we will receive a reward that lasts forever. So my prayer for you today is that you would experience the hope of God in this season. My prayer for you today is that when you look at your life and you see things that aren't the way that you want them to be, that you will have hope for the future. My prayer for you today is that when you see family members who, who have turned away from God, that there is hope that they can still be redeemed and restored back to a right relationship with God. If it's a financial situation, if it's a physical illness, no matter what you're facing today, I want you to know that you have hope. And so we want to pray today, and, and I, I just want you to, to join with me together, and we'll pray. That, that as Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father for us, that we would feel that hope in our lives. Let's pray.
Lord God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to come into your house. We thank you for this for this uh, this history lesson that we have learned today about Stephen and about his witness and his testimony. Lord God, we thank you that it has been recorded for us. But Lord God, there are people in this house today, I know there are, that don't feel the hope that we should be feeling at this time of year. So Lord God, I pray that you would just continue to bless them. And I pray that you would give them a, a, a unique glimpse of your love for them. A unique insight into what's going on in heaven on their behalf, Lord God. If there's someone in this house today who's never accepted you as their Savior, Lord, we pray together, Lord, that as they commit themselves to living for you, Lord, we pray that you would, would give them the comfort and the peace to know that they have begun a new experience and they now have that hope as well. They no longer have to burden along or, and, and struggle along under the burden of sin, Lord, but they have hope that it's been taken away and that, that someday that they can live with you forever. Lord, for those Christians who are in this house that are struggling with situations in their family, in their finances, in their, with illnesses, Lord, with relationships, with, with issues at, at work, Lord, whatever it is that's stealing the joy that we have in you, Lord God, I pray that you would just remove that from them. Help them to see that they are loved. Help them to see that you are actively working on their behalf and help them to see that if they will just stay faithful, Lord, that they will be vindicated by you that you have a hope for them. Lord God, even for, for families who are suffering losses right now, we don't mourn like those who have no hope because we know that someday we'll be reunited together with those who we love. Lord God, we thank you for the hope of this time of year. Lord, I'm grateful that Christmas falls at the end of the year. It helps us see that all throughout the year, you've been loving us and it gives us a, a fresh lease on life for a new year to begin. Lord, we want to grab a hold of that hope. We want to hold it in our heart, Lord. And when, when enemies and, and when circumstances try to steal that from us, Lord God, we are going to hold on to it knowing that you love us. You're working on our behalf. And we pray in Jesus' name.